I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome everyone to another very exciting episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're going to be talking about free speech in America. And of course, you might be wondering, why are we talking about that? We've got the First Amendment, everyone loves free speech, it's a good thing, it's great. But it turns out it's much more complicated than that. And this is a big topic. So we're going to focus a little bit to make sure that we don't spend the next two hours talking at you. Uh, And so we're not talking about privacy. We're not going to talk about legal challenges or quibbles about free speech. We're not going to talk about government spying. We're not going to talk about the FCC. What we're going to be talking about is specifically free speech in U.S. civil society and how people feel about it. So quick disclaimer, Xander and I are both big proponents of free speech, but our purpose here is to give some context to the argument between those who want to let it run totally free and those who want to curtail it in some way for a greater good. Right now, the controversy that we're looking at is mostly over speech that harms ethnic minorities, religious minorities, women, LGBT groups, the disabled, and other people that are not in the upper ranks of the privileged hierarchy. There's a lot of controversy around that uh, in a lot of places, but specifically a lot on college campuses. And we'll be looking at a lot of those recent controversies to help us understand what might be going on. Long story short, free speech is super swell. And Eric and I are both big proponents of it. Of course, most things that are worth being proponents of have some degree of nuance. And that's what we hope to get into. Before we get into it, Eric and I would like to ask very kindly if you wouldn't mind hopping on iTunes and giving Reconsider a quick review. The more reviews we have, the greater the chance we have an opportunity to get our podcast and our message of the importance of context out to more people. So we would really appreciate a quick review. Also, of course, we are on Twitter and Facebook at ReconsiderPod if you'd like to follow us there. We post news articles on a daily basis about some of the topics that we talk about on the show and some that we don't. Please, sir, can I have some more reviews? More? (laughs) Yes, more, please. With more reviews, Eric will do more Oliver Twist impersonations. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, on to it. So, as Eric mentioned, we're going to be talking about free speech primarily on university campuses today. And what makes this topic so interesting, especially in light of recent events with, of course, the last six, eight months, is that there have been a lot of examples of student protests on university campuses all across the country, essentially demanding that schools punish or curtail certain types of offensive speech. And there are two examples that have come up that have really received a lot of media attention. One is at the University of Missouri, and the other of which is at Yale. Yeah, so when students are leading protests about trying to curtail free speech in some ways, sometimes the faculty balk and they push back and they say, no, 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 we want free ideas to flow. Sometimes they're supportive and sometimes they get much more actively involved. So one of the examples recently was there was a protest at the University of Missouri, and this student journalist wanted to, you know, amble up to the protesters and start interviewing them, asking them some questions, write some stuff down in the news in the school newspaper. And uh, Melissa Clark, who is a professor at the University of Missouri, physically stopped the journalist from interviewing the protesters. So she got in his way and pushed him around, and then started yelling at some cops who were like, "Hey, you can't go around pushing people." It got really 
intense. And then after after that, the protests and counter-protests at University of Missouri continued to flare up, as some people said, no, what the student was trying to do was unacceptable. This was a safe space, and they shouldn't be bothered by the press. And other people were saying, no, the press should be free to go in and ask questions if it wants, and people don't have to answer, but you can't restrict them. That's wrong. And that's far from resolved at this point. Yeah. In fact, according to a recent Gallup poll, about half of students polled believe that they should, in one form or another, be able to actually prevent the media from covering protests, which, you know, at first glance seems to kind of go against this idea of freedom of expression that, you know, these academic institutions are supposed to be all about. Another case that has attracted a lot of attention recently is uh, something that occurred at Yale at the end of 2015. Around Halloween, uh, you know, officials at a lot of colleges were advising students to avoid costumes or party themes that had ethnic or racial elements that could potentially be, you know, offensive. There is this individual, Erica Christakis, who was an associate master of one of the residential colleges at Yale, who sent an email essentially asking and, and provoking the question, you know, if offensive themes like that should actually be restricted in a top-down manner. And it, here, here's a quick quote from her email just to kind of get a taste of how everything was phrased. She said, quote, Even if we can agree on how to avoid offense, I wonder, and I am not trying to be provocative, is there no room anymore for a child or young person to be a little bit obnoxious, a little bit inappropriate or provocative, or, yes, offensive? American universities were once a safe space not only for maturation but also for certain regressive or even transgressive experience. Increasingly, it seems they've become places of censure and prohibition. Have we lost faith in young people's capacity and your capacity to exercise self-censure through social norming and also in your capacity to ignore or reject things that trouble you? So this really generated a ton of fury among students. Uh, her husband, Nicholas Christakis, who's also another residential college master but also a professor at Yale, was essentially screamed at by a group of student protesters, cursed at by a very visibly upset student when he tried to engage this group about this particular issue, and we'll throw a post up here. But essentially, after Erica Christakis sent this email out, students have been demanding that both her and her husband be dismissed as faculty members. And in response to this open letter, there was another open letter published by professors, uh, signed by, I think, over 100 professors, basically saying that the email that Erica sent to the community did not express support for racist expressions, but rather focused primarily on the question of whether monitoring and criticizing this expression should be done in a top-down manner. So this is just a taster of the debate that's going on right now across the country on university campuses, and there's no shortage of examples. We'll throw a link up to an Atlantic article that has something like, you know, a list of 50 different campuses where some sort of free speech issue or debate has come up recently. There are other examples where student protests have, protests have materialized against what could be construed as right-wing speakers on campus in order to prevent it and frequently winning. So a recent example of this is at Rutgers University, where students stage a mass protest in order to prevent former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice from speaking for their commencement. And sometimes I've, I've been asked the question, well, how big a deal is this? Is this just a few isolated incidents popping up that are getting a lot of attention? Is it widespread? And it's hard to say because it's not a particularly quantifiable thing. I think that one indicator of how big a deal it might be is that President Obama then went to Rutgers himself uh, and he gave at their commencement a passionate defense about the importance of free speech on campus and the respect of it, because he's, he at least believes that there's a major problem. The other indicator of this is that uh, in a Pew poll, 28% of Americans overall and 40% of the millennial generation believe that the government should use law or should be able to use law to censor offensive statements about minorities. So that whether people understand the implications or not of that poll, what they're saying is that ultimately the government should be able to throw people in jail for this stuff. That's, whoa, I mean, that's super striking to me, right? That 
there's such a, a higher percentage in our generation that that's essentially willing to be okay with with free speech being censored. And perhaps more surprising is that Americans are still far more likely on average to believe that people should have the right to make offensive statements in public compared to other countries. So, you know, in fact, actually compared to even other Western countries, approximately something like two thirds of Americans say that people should be able to say offensive things in public still, despite 40% of American millennials not thinking that. And, you know, just as a point of comparison, across a median or the median of like 38 other countries where Pew also did this poll said that 35% of people thought that you should have the right to say publicly offensive or offensive things publicly. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was 49% across six other Western European countries polled. So America's still doing better on average. It's two thirds, but percent of millennials is much lower. Yeah, I guess I'm not so surprised about the European thing because, you know, we know that in a lot of countries, there are already laws against forming certain political parties or having a Nazi flag or saying any Nazi-like things because, of course, that experience was so awful and the reaction, whether it's helpful or not or effective or not, is let's just make it illegal to say this stuff. Just we're not just going to – we're just not going to entertain – that being part of our public discourse anymore. And we will throw people in jail for stuff like Holocaust denial. And, you know, the thing is to me, like that makes intuitive sense, right? Saying don't express Nazi ideas and sentiments in Germany. I I mean, that seems logical. I mean, certainly at first glance, but even past that too, right? But I I mean, maybe there are just some ideas that are so potentially dangerous that they should and need to be shut up by some sort of higher authority. The question though is... Who decides what those ideas are? So here in America, free speech is legal right. It is enshrined in the First Amendment along with the right to assembly. And it forbids Congress and the states from having laws that prohibit free speech. The idea, of course, was to make sure that the government or a particular party or faction could not curtail political speech or ideas of any sort. And... Hamilton and John Jay and Madison make really impassioned pleas for this in the Federalist Papers, which were a set of essays essentially trying to get people to get behind the idea of a federal government. So essentially, what's the summary here, right? You can't use violence to stop speech. Private institutions, since they're private, can refuse you membership, like a university, for example, if they so choose, but employers cannot. Right. So we've got free speech as a legal right in the United States, there are obviously some restrictions on it. And that's a whole slew of precedent from the Supreme Court and other courts about what you can and can't restrict. So some of the more controversial stuff includes the FCC being able to censor curse words on the radio. Uh, Less controversial stuff includes it being illegal to tell someone that you're going to murder their kids or that there's a fire in a crowded theater and stuff like that. But what's really interesting is what's going on in the public sphere and the the growing opinion of a case against total free speech of political ideas. So not telling someone you're going to kill them, but political expressions, artistic expressions, or ideas as a whole that are hurtful or offensive, in particular to underprivileged people. And so... What does the case against look like? Well, it's ultimately around harm. And so there's kind of two kinds of harm that are going on here with this sort of offensive speech. And so we have to be careful about the word offensive because a lot of people react to that and they go, oh, just get over it, right? Oh, you're offended, too bad. But what they're talking about is real, is is what they consider real harm. And so one of these is a, a personal and emotional harm. So if you, for example, like drop the N-word on someone and, and that person is hurt by it, in particular due to the context of oppression that they face in modern society and through history, right? that might be a certain form of real harm to that person. And we do believe in emotional harm in some cases as a reason that free speech or that speech is at least, at least can be wrong. So harassment might be a form of that, where you're not physically hurting or threatening a person, 
but you are still harming them. And so there's an argument that this falls into the same thing. So the other kind is societal, right? So certain kinds of speech or art are argued to hurt the general position of oppressed minorities as a whole by influencing others to feel that they are inferior. So if, for example, it was the late 1800s and you ran around in New York and you saw a bunch of signs that said, Irish need not apply, that would normalize in a lot of people's minds the idea that Irish people are fundamentally inferior to other people and that there would be a greater societal harm both to obviously the Irish, but to society as a whole. So there's an argument for saying there has to be some mechanism to stop this kind of speech. Some other cases of speech is harm that generally the country tends to agree with, or at least has laws against, are slander and libel. I already mentioned harassment and yelling fire in a crowded theater. Uh, fraud, saying that something is true and it's not in order to get money out of someone. Threats and assault, inciting a riot. So if you you know make this if you make this impassioned speech on a pulpit and then all of a sudden people are like ah right and they want to go kill someone because you got them really fired up about it, you're liable criminally. So speech as as harm that we can punish isn't actually a new idea. Restricting speech that harms people isn't new. What there is a debate about is how to determine what is punishable harm and how to determine what stuff is fundamentally protected even if it is punishable harm. So let's say you might be balking at the idea of society, either through government or through pressure from the community, restricting someone's free speech because of emotional harm. You may be saying, oh, emotional harm, deal with it, right? Let's look at some sort of extreme cases of intuitive emotional harm, by which I mean we can intuit that there is emotional harm from speech and, and see what you think. So would it be okay for a community to shout down someone who's telling a child that their parents hate them or convincing a person that they're a worthless human being, regardless of their race or ethnicity, that just that they individually are worthless. And if you're okay with that, what if they were so convinced that they went on to kill themselves, right? What if it wasn't harassment, but simply a really compelling conversation? You know, you sat down with Hannibal Lecter and he's like, let's have a conversation, Clarice, right? And at the end, you swallow your own tongue. You know, has he caused you emotional harm just by convincing you of something using pure logic? So, Something to consider here is, in these cases and others that you might be able to imagine, what would you want to happen as society's response, either by the government or by civil institutions? Would you want people to be able to be free legally or civilly to do this? Um, so we can see, hopefully we can see that this actually gets pretty complicated and it's not totally cut or dry. Right. And this really points to the bigger issue here, which is not, should we be able to restrict speech to some degree? Because... You know, with the examples that you just gave, Eric, I mean, the, the point is we kind of already agree that it's okay to restrict speech as a society in certain contexts, right? The question is, how do we determine which speech is okay to be restricted? And a lot of this has to do with this harm principle. Some proposals that, that exist out there for determining which speech should or should not be limited, you know, include things like popular outcry and whether or not there's enough pressure from a group of people demanding that something should be curtailed. There are demands that non-governmental authorities block certain speech with restrictions and punishment, like universities, for example. Um, there's a great uh, well, I don't know if great's the right word, but at the University of California, Berkeley, there's been this interesting row with Senator Feinstein and her husband, Richard Bloom, who's actually a regent on the University of California system. Uh, he basically came out and said, if the University of California is not willing to curtail to a greater degree certain types of what he considers to be anti-Semitic speech, then his wife, Senator Feinstein, will engage publicly with the issue. I mean, it was kind of a veiled threat. What he said exactly was, you know, I should add that over the weekend, my wife, your senior senator, and I talked about this issue at length, and she, while she wants to stay out of the conversation, wink, wink, nod, nod, uh, publicly, nonetheless, if we do not do the right thing, she will engage publicly and is prepared to be critical of the university if we don't have the uh, if we don't have the kind of not only statement but penalties for those who commit what you can call crimes, referring to a certain type of speech. So there are people in positions of power now saying that 
universities should not only have the right to limit speech, but should have the right to punish people as criminals if they engage in certain types of speech. Then there's, of course, proposals for limiting certain types of speakers from speaking at different types of campuses like uh, former Secretary Rice. And then, of course, there's the far end of the spectrum, which is allowing the government itself to uh, curtail certain types of speech, thereby making it illegal. So in my mind, the crux of the issue here is what counts as harm. The, the idea of the harm principle essentially leaves the definition of harm to essentially reside in the mind of the person who believes that they have been harmed or not, rather than some sort of objective measure for de determining if harm has actually been perpetrated. That's not to say that there's any complication in someone talking about their feelings. I mean, th their feelings are their feelings, and they have a right to those. But when fault is going to be determined and levied against someone, an action going to be taken to constrain their ability to express certain ideas in public especially in a free society, that becomes complex. Just as a hyperbolic example, but you know, one that I think makes the case fairly convincingly, consider if someone felt hurt by someone else saying the word noodle, for example, because that person you know, knew someone who was close to them that died from choking to death on noodles. So to what extent does it go beyond you know, mere insensitivity to continue using the word noodle around that person? Are they actually legitimately harmed? And this is kind of where we get into, you know, things like microaggressions and a growing net of different kinds of speech that are considered harmful rather than just something that one can change to make the world a slightly better place, you know, just being a little bit more consider uh, considerate instead of having certain phrases and expressions be outlawed. So some others might say that these non-objective cases, the person with the noodle problem, it's just their problem, and it's just something that they need to deal with and not demand that everyone else changes the way that they act uh, around not only them, but in public generally. So again, we come back to what the real difficulty, the challenges surrounding the free speech issue, which is how do you define objectivity when it comes to harm? Yeah, and frequently this stuff tends to get pinned to definitions that are at least somewhat objectifiably determinable, right? So if you're an underprivileged or oppressed minority of some sort, the group of people that's thinking about curtailing free speech is pretty sympathetic to you saying, hey, look, this person is being racist and it's clear how there's a an oppressive system set up around me and so that racism is harmful to me and they're less sympathetic to someone at the top of the privilege hierarchy saying, well, that was hurtful to me. And so now everyone, you know, me as an individual, just because I'm me, and everyone else has to sort of bend over backwards for me. Some of the opponents of that may say, ah, but you're just like, constantly coming up with new stuff all the time. And, you know, just adding, you know, adding this growing list of things that if you're not at the top of the privilege hierarchy, you get to complain about and it's my problem. And I'm not actually doing anything objectively harmful and just because you're an underprivileged minority doesn't mean you now have a blank check to be able to tell everyone else how to talk. Um, and so that's some of the complication that's going on there. Now, so there's this, there is this case against, and I think it's real as much as, you know, again, Xander and I are like, oh, but we love free speech. There's a real case there and it's something that we need to think about. And I think something that we need to define really well, right? Because because if it's just a total mess and nobody can agree on anything, we're going to run into trouble. But there is, what's the case for free speech? Now, this, this sounds like it's almost not even worth saying. But the other end of the spectrum makes two arguments. One of them is that harm is something, internal emotional harm is something that you can control. And we're not going to go over this too much, but in a lot of individualist philosophies like Stoicism or Buddhism, there's this idea that, you know, sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me, where you have an internal responsibility to control your emotional reaction to what people say around you. And you have the capacity to do this. And if you don't think you have the capacity to do this, you just haven't been appropriately trained, right? And you need to take the responsibility to learn how to not have other people's words be something that harms you, at least emotionally. 
So there's that argument generally. But there's another argument in which someone may say, it doesn't matter if it harms that person emotionally because free speech must be protected even when people are hurt. Particularly, we're talking about people who are defending political ideas. Now I'm gonna say something controversial. Racism is a political idea. It is not a popular one, and I disagree with it, but it is a political idea to say, for example, you know, purple people are fundamentally superior to orange people is a political thought. It is an idea. And there are people who argue that these political ideas should all be protected universally, even if they are unpopular and we don't like them. So let's take an example of this. Let's take an extreme example of this. Let's say someone thinks that a minority group is racially inferior and does not deserve equal rights. This idea is protected by the First Amendment. So that's why we have the KKK and the Westboro Baptist Church being able to run about and do what they want. Because as a country, we, res we protect, even if we don't civilly respect, their ability to say what they want in public. And these thoughts are, what they're saying is a belief, a political idea. I happen to believe that what their speech represents is very wrong. But do I get to say that someone else is not allowed to say it? If a majority or a large enough majority of people believe that something is terrible or wrong to say, should it be banned? If you think yes, let's consider, for example, the abolitionists of the 1800s. They were a minority for a long time. And a lot of people thought what they were saying was actually immoral because it was upsetting what they believed was this moral hierarchy. Would it have been right for the majority to have the power to suppress their political ideas at that time? So ultimately, it can often be tempting when we are a majority or a large majority of political thought and we really have strong moral opinions on it. It can be tempting to say, of course, we should ban it. But, but when you give the government the power to start banning political speech when it is popular to ban it, the problem might be that you end up on the other side of it. Yeah, things have a tendency throughout history to come back and bite you, uh, especially if you're a majority faction working against a minority faction because you just never know who's going to be in office tomorrow, right? And we really try hard on this show to avoid expressing your opinions, but I'll, I'll just express mine on one example that you just gave, Eric. You know, the Westboro Baptist Church, if you've never heard of these people, I mean, it's some of the things they do are just awful. They go to funerals of veterans that have died in combat and basically protest around this grieving family saying, you know, God wanted him to die and stuff like that. Because of gay people, you see, it makes total sense. It's just, it's not only terrible, it's also insane and completely illogical. But I mean, that's the thing is that there are different types of people out there that think differently, right? And the thing is, when you use these extreme examples, it just seems so, to, to, it seems to intuitively make sense. Like, you should not be able to say stuff like that, right? The problem is that when you use examples to sit on the far side of the spectrum, it's easier to make a case one way or another. But as you move to the middle, things become a little bit more gray, and it becomes more difficult to tease out the gray areas. And if you're setting precedent that it's going to apply to more and more gray areas in the future with extreme examples, you run the risk of curtailing speech that shouldn't really be curtailed uh, at all. So th again, I think the problem that we keep coming back to is that there's no real objective or disinterested, all-knowing party that exists in our society or any society that can determine what ideas are good and which are so awful that they should never be spoken. And the fear is this slippery slope. Once you start restraining some forms of political speech or ideas because certain people don't like them or, in a more extreme sense, find them so morally repugnant that you just don't think that they should exist in a free society, well, then we've given power to whatever authority ex exists at that state and time to keep restricting speech of others in the future. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Eric, I know you're a big fan of John Stuart Mill. I am. And uh, he very eloquently laid out the case for spe- uh, free speech in his treatise on liberty, you know, which a-, a lot of sort of the modern notion of free speech is really based on. So, yeah, I really just wanted to read all of chapter two at you guys and Xander wouldn't let me. So we've got a link to chapter two. It's since it's in the public domain, you can get it online for free. You're not even cheating anyone or breaking the law by doing so. So follow that link. Give it a read regardless of how you feel on free speech, because it is the thing that makes the best possible case for it. And you should be, well, maybe not best possible, but a great case for it. And you should be informed of what that case is. Uh, So seriously, go read them. I'm super serial about it. Definitely do it. I'm going to read a few quotes that bring the other side of the free speech debate to light that are able to grapple and contend with the harm principle. So the first thing Mill says is this. Well, not the first. So one quote is this. If all of mankind minus one were of one opinion and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. And so the idea here is Mill is saying that just because there are a lot of people that think something doesn't mean that they have the objective capacity to correctly silence other political ideas any more than that one person has the objective capacity. So if we go back to the abolitionists, for example, it would be terrible for the abolitionists to have been silenced just because they were a minority. Mill also has a case that Bad ideas running around in the public conscience is actually a good thing and a powerful thing and important for democracy. He says, quote, the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of opinion is that it is robbing the human race. If the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as great a benefit, the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its own collision with error. Yeah, I mean, I know many would would argue, and I would probably agree, that bad ideas, however you define bad, are far more likely to disappear and fade from the public consciousness when they're shown the light of day. Because when they're suppressed, well, then they become taboo. And taboo ideas tend to be sought after by people. There's rebels everywhere, right? Exactly. So, yeah, they also, they retreat into an echo chamber as people aren't even allowed to bring them out to be argued against. So when you tell someone, you just can't say that, you know, let's say someone's a racist and you say, you just can't say that. Well, they're still a bloody racist. And what are they going to do? Well, they're only going to talk about racism with all their racist friends in like camp racism, right? Worst summer camp ever. (laughs) Worst worst summer camp ever. And they're just, and they're going to be like, oh my God, we're so right. And they're never going to have this opportunity to, have their ideas challenged and changed, right? So what we're actually doing when we suppress people from saying this stuff, the argument is that we actually slow progress because we don't let people with bad ideas get in tussles with other people and eventually get convinced to change their minds. And you might be thinking, "Ah, nobody ever changes their minds, but people do. People used to believe in slavery. They thought it was fine. Now they don't, right? So it does change. The final quote that Xander let me sneak in here is this, and it talks about the problem with the tyranny of the majority in specific. So Mill says, quote, protection, therefore, against the tyranny of the magistrate or the government is not enough. There needs protection also against the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling 
against the tendency of society to impose its own ideas and the practices as rules of conduct on those who dissent from them. There is a limit to the legitimate interference of collective opinion with individual independence, and to find that limit and maintain it against encroachment is is as indispensable to a good condition of human affairs as protection against political despotism. Despotism. So Mill actually has, this keeps going, and he, he basically says, turns out that freedom of speech being suppressed by majority opinion is even more dangerous than the government, because all the government can do is throw you in jail if you say the wrong thing, where society can make all of your life miserable if they know that you happen to think a certain thing. So you can lose jobs. Like, for example, in universities, there's, and we have another blog post on this that I'll link, there's a widespread admitted bias against conservatives and evangelical Christians. People, you know, uh, university leaders and professors say, I just won't hire them. And so this is an example of where prevailing opinion is actually stopping people from being able to get jobs. And in this case, in a very important field, that being the university sphere, where you might want some new ideas to come in. Now, there are arguments where you might not want those new ideas because they're wrong, right? We don't want to be teaching students wrong things. And so that's the counter-argument to that. Tune in next week on Reconsider, where Eric Fogg will read all of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. <laughs> it'll, it'll make for a thrilling bedtime story. It's, it's true. Bring it to your next date. <laughs> I heard a summary once of Leviathan. Uh, I think it was on this podcast called The Partially Examined Life. They were talking about it for about two hours. At one point, one of the guys says, you know, I think you can sum this whole book up by, you know, someone's got to be in charge. so so there there you have it 380 80 page uh highly influential treatise summarized in 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 one sentence and it's not a bad summary uh now for those of you with more of a for those of you with more of a modern interest and saying you know old dead white guys you know back in the times of slavery only really know so much about liberty it's just also worth playing a quick clip from Obama's speech at Rutgers about free speech on campus. So you've got to be committed to participating, not just if you get immediate gratification, but you've got to be a citizen full-time all the time. And if participation means voting, and it means compromise, and organizing, and advocacy, it also means listening to those who don't agree with you. I know a couple of years ago, folks, some folks on this campus got upset that Condoleezza Rice was supposed to speak at a commencement. Now, I don't think it's a secret that I disagree with many of the foreign policies of Dr. Rice and the previous administration. But the notion that this community or the country would be better served by not hearing from a former Secretary of State or shutting out what she had to say, I, I believe that's misguided. I don't think that's how democracy works best, when we're not even willing to listen to each other. I believe that's misguided. If you disagree with somebody, bring them in and ask them tough questions. Hold their feet to the fire. Make them defend their positions. If somebody's got a bad or offensive idea, prove it wrong. Engage it. Debate it. Stand up for what you believe in. Don't be scared to take somebody on. Don't feel like you got to shut your ears off because you're too fragile and somebody might offend your sensibilities. Go at them if they're not making any sense. Use your logic and reason and words. And by doing so, you'll strengthen your own position. And you'll hone your arguments. And maybe you'll learn something and realize you don't know everything. And you may have a new understanding, not only about what your opponents believe, but maybe what you believe. Either way, you win. And more importantly, our democracy wins. Eric is much more eloquent at reading from well-known philosophy texts than I. So I'll just take a quick snippet of a quote that I, I like throwing around and in polite and not so polite conversation from time to time. And it's 
Voltaire, one of the, the leaders in the Enlightenment and a guy on which a lot of the founding principles of America were, were taken from and developed on. And generally a real pain in the ass. <laughs> That's true. He also wrote a very dark novel called Candide that Leonard Bernstein actually turned into a great musical slash opera. But that's besides the point. What did he say, Xander? He said, I do not agree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And I think that's as good an encapsulation of this entire debate in a single sentence as you can possibly get. Or at least that side of it. Exactly, yeah. Because again, there are some things that we agree on as a society that can be restricted. So... What do we have to consider? What do we have to reconsider? I keep coming back when I think about this topic to the idea of harm. I think ultimately the entire free speech issue is trying to discern what what is harm, how we define harm, who defines what harm is. Some argue that we need an objective definition in which some, some outsider determines from the actions of the offender whether there has been some objective harm performed based on the definition of objective harm that the society is using at a given time. Regardless of how the victim feels about it. They may feel fine, but it may still be a crime, or they may feel terrible, but it's not a crime. That would be the objective definition. Exactly. Whereas other folks would argue that a victim-defined definition is more appropriate. So if someone feels that they have been harmed, then they have been, and nobody can tell them that they haven't. Then there's also a question of severity. Is there a level of severity that is merely uncouth? Is there some level above that that should incite the action of individuals to stop that? When does it go beyond just being uncouth? And at what point is there an obligation of an institutional authority to forcefully intervene in restricting that speech? And even further, at what level can the government or whatever central authority exists in a society step in with the threat of censure and therefore the threat of prison? And finally, I think we need to consider whether ideas have a special protection from the different ways that we can frame these concepts of harm. So if someone believes that all people with six fingers should be culled from the gene pool or something equally terrible... Should that idea be forcefully suppressed by some governing authority? Or should we let that idea run free, even though some people may be emotionally harmed by the idea? And, you know, that also speaks to the question of effect. What's more effective, letting these bad ideas exist, even if they cause more emotional damage? Or will we actually end up harming people more by repressing those ideas, creating a taboo, and in many ways encouraging people to seek them out because they're just so interesting if you can't know them? I had a conversation recently where we were trying to figure this out. What's the right level here? And we kept trying to think of different objective definitions of different political ideas. And the, the most interesting one was actually about thinking that certain people should be killed. Because someone said, ah, obviously you can't say that certain people should be killed, like, you know, racial minorities or something, or, you know, so we have, you know, so some people might say if, if, you know, Bob said, I think we should kill people with genetic deformities, right? Is that harm that should be suppressed? And people are like, eh, I don't know. And then someone said, well, okay, what if Bob said, I think we should kill Asian people. They should just all die. Some would be like, oh, it's genocide. You can't say that. And then someone else said, uh, well, and yeah, and the conversation went to, okay, let's not, it's like not okay to say, okay, blanket group should be killed because that's awful and we can't do it. And then someone else said, well, what if someone said, I think we should kill members of ISIS? And I was like, oh, crap. Okay, definition just exploded because most people in that room happen to agree that it should be okay to say that you want to kill members of ISIS. Even if you don't agree, you shouldn't, stop people from saying that. And so I think that was my favorite recent example of going, oh man, this is just really complicated and we can't figure out easily the level of harm or the types of political speech that should fall into the yes, definitely suppress it or no, definitely don't side. And so there's just this ongoing question that we want to leave you guys with, which is, is there an objective way to sort this stuff out? that isn't just based on what our intuition says. Yeah, I think that's an interesting example. Now, I bet, you know, 
some folks hearing that that argument of the dist- distinction between all Asians and ISIS would say, for example, well, ISIS, these are people obviously responsible for actions that they've taken, horrible, horrible actions that are reminiscent of medieval torture, whereas, quote, all Asians, they're just people. They're just people that are existing. You're defining the group by ethnicity in one case and by actions in another. How would you respond to that, Eric? Yeah, that's a great question. What if we change it to all Nazis, for example? We should kill Nazis. This might be an easier thing to defend because generally people in ISIS tend to participate more actively. Not all of them do. I mean, some of them just sell stuff, right? They're like, yeah, I mean, I support ISIS, so just sell stuff, you know, at a shop or something. But let's say we should kill all Nazis. Is And I don't want to discuss whether that would be the right thing. Probably don't think it is. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately what we're asking about is, is it okay to draw a line around a certain group? Yeah, I, I think this is sort of an example of how drawing extreme examples seems really obvious but when you start walking into the middle of the line it becomes a lot less clear because obviously no we should not like get genocide as bad like it's obvious right and killing isis is a good thing because these people are terrible now let's just walk that in a little bit so all of isis right but what about all terrorists does that mean that it's okay to just kill people in the uh in eta the basque terrorist organization or you know, mm. uh, Irish or IRA. yeah, the IRA. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you walk in a little further. What counts as terrorism, right? And now all of a sudden you're getting into all these murky grounds where you need to start defining what actions count towards what quote-unquote terrorism is. And then you can say, oh, well, you're just speaking about actions in a general sense. What actions should you have the right to kill someone for without any, you know, judicial intervention, for example? And the far other side of this, you have uh, – Asians is the example we use. You know, obviously, no, they should have a right to live like everyone else. You walk that in a little bit and you say, okay, well, some people in America seem to think that, uh, you know, we shouldn't kill this group of people, but we should blanket have a right to prevent all Muslims from coming into the country, right? Or we have a right to kill terrorist family, who, families who might not be actually involved in a, any terrorist action. Or in the Second World War, Someone might say, hey, because Japan is trying to take over all of East Asia, it's totally okay to firebomb Tokyo. Like, yeah, civilians will die, but it's the right thing, and those people are going to die. Yeah, exactly. So I think the, the difficulty comes not from these extreme examples that Eric and I presented just as, as a means to sort of prove a point one way or another. But when you, mm-hmm. when you get into that gray area which is where reality sits, right? Reality is not usually in these hyperbolic examples. Yeah, and so the question ultimately is not whether any of these ideas are good ideas or bad ideas, but whether the appropriate response to them is, it's unacceptable to say that, and I'm going to shout you down, or you're an idiot, and I'm going to tell you why, and we're going to have an argument about it, right? Because the former is where you're saying, this is so bad, we have to suppress free speech. And the latter is, that's a terrible idea, and you're allowed to say it, but I'm allowed to call you a moron and tell you why. And I think that's the important question to ask is, what's that response that we want to have to bad or abhorrent ideas? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what what's going to be more effective for a free society? Someone, you know, again, Trump is an example keeps coming to mind. Someone saying, we should block this entire group of religious people from entering our country, should we shut that out of the public discourse and not let anyone know? Because I'll tell you what, if we were to do that, then all of Trump supporters would still know that that were happening, except then they'd also have this degree of righteousness where they can claim that they're being censored. Or should we let everyone know that this, this is an idea that someone actually holds who might wield a certain degree of influence or a great degree of power in the near future? I would probably argue that it's better to get Uh, what a lot of people would consider to be very bad ideas out into the open, out into the public discourse, and let the light of day show us clearly which ideas are not worth enshrining our values in. Yeah, and the other side of that is, should we stop, you know, if the Ku Klux Klan decides it's going to march through Harlem or some other predominantly black area and just start screaming at everyone there that, like, you're an inferior race and you should all be enslaved, should we stop that? Or should we say, yeah, let it air out, right? Let it have the light of day. 
um, that might be something that, you know, that also gets the gears turning. So I think this line that we're talking about as you creep in towards the gray area of what speech should be protected and what should be suppressed is really gray. It's ambiguous, whether it be from government or civil interference or even from private institutions. In the end, I think we need to try to make up our own minds. I think it is a matter of attempting to determine what, as a society, we can agree is harmful, what counts as harm in the same way that we seem to have at least somewhat agreed upon slander, fraud, and harassment being harmful, and what ideas should be allowed to be discussed, even if they are offensive to some or many. And that ultimately seems to be you know, the framing and the context in which I think this issue should be discussed. So with that, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Reconsider. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ReconsiderPod. We post interesting articles on a daily basis now. Feel free to engage with us and tweet at us if you have a suggestion of podcast episodes you'd be interested in hearing about, or if you'd just like to disagree with something that we've said on a prior podcast. You can agree to, that's fine, agreement, but disagreement's more interesting. Exactly. It causes us to reconsider. Indeed. Coming up soon, we did a prior episode recently on Brexit, and if you've listened to that, you will know that the British referendum to leave the European Union is coming up June 23rd, so it might actually yeah, it might be occurring before we know, get another podcast episode out. So if you haven't been following this issue, tune in, check out on June 23rd, see what happens with the referendum. It's really close. It's getting yeah. there, and the po- yeah, the, the polls are very even. It's hard to tell exactly which way this is going to go. But if you want a quick overview, check out our, our episode on it. We try to give you the, the scoop on all the different ways that uh, the different perspectives in, in the UK are thinking about this. So with that, remember, don't let the pundits think for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric. After you reconsider, go talk about it. Get some more people to help you reconsider. Help them reconsider. Go have a conversation. This is Eric signing off. Take care, guys. Have a good day. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.